Hello, it's Monday, the 26th of February, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Won Jang Wo. The government has warned the 10,000 trainee doctors who have resigned in protest of the plan to increase the medical school admissions quota. They have until Thursday to return to work, or they will face legal consequences. We have more in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we examine the growing speculation over a possible North Korea-Japan summit and what the two sides may look to gain from the meeting. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we discuss the return of pitcher Ryunjin to the KBO and the latest in the search for a new head coach for the men's national football team. We have all that and more for today's Crow 24. The number of trainee doctors who have handed in their resignations in protest of the government's medical school enrolment quota hike has now surpassed the 10,000 mark. But the government is refusing to back down. It has responded by setting Thursday as the deadline for the doctors to return to work. Otherwise, they could face legal consequences. For more on this story and other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. The escalating standoff between the two sides has now entered its second week. Can you start us off with the latest developments? Yes, the trainee doctors resigned en masse, and of course it results in reports of delayed surgeries and cancellation of patient consultations at the five major general hospitals in Seoul. On Monday, the government issued an ultimatum, return to work by Thursday or face criminal punishment. At a meeting with officials, Interior Minister Yi Sang-min said the government was making its final appeal that it will not hold to account doctors to return to duties by the death. Line. This announcement prior to the announcement prior to this were plans to punish the trainee doctors over their decision to resign, threatening them with revocation of licenses, detention, and criminal investigations. So this is quite a turnaround there. Chong Jin Heng, head of the emergency committee representing professors at Seoul National University's medical school, during a news briefing, urged the government to take responsibility for damaging the democracy of the nation. The emergency panel met with trainee doctors and called for a dialogue with the government, saying persuasion will be more effective in ending the collective action. And what's the count now of the doctors taking action in protest of the government move? I understand that uh, medical students have now joined in as well. That's right. So as of 7 p.m. last Friday, the health ministry's inspection of data from 100 major teaching hospitals found 10,034 or just over 80 percent of resident doctors had submitted resignations, over 9,000 having left their jobs. Med students are taking similar actions, 12,674 or more than 67 percent of medical school students nationwide apply for a leave of absence as of Sunday. Meanwhile, an emergency steering committee of the Korean Medical Association said said its planned rally on Sunday will be the start of a big journey in doctors' resistance against the government's health care policies. Can you tell us more? The committee had a message to KMA members on Monday that the time has come to select between a path of mutual destruction or resistance through to the end, stressing that unless doctors let everyone know about what's fueling their anger, their journey will be perilous. The panel claimed that the government's policies were unjustified, that trainee doctors and medical students are leaving their practice with no hope for the future under the government's planned quota expansion and policies for essential medicine, even accusing the government and society of demonizing doctors as people who lack work ethic. The committee blamed the government for causing the shortage of doctors by operating medical services like a welfare system. Well, in any case, the government's Thursday deadline looms. We'll see how the situation develops. In the meantime, let's turn to our other headlines now. 
The government announced today that it plans to offer tax incentives in its corporate value up program to enhance the value of domestic companies to address their undervaluation in the stock market. Can you tell us more? Right, often referred to as the Korea discount. The situation, the Financial Services Commission released their initiative on Monday. Under the program, listed companies are advised to voluntarily set their own stock price increase targets and devise detailed plans on how and when they will achieve them. The government will support such efforts with tax benefits. The FSC and the Korea Exchange will provide comprehensive guidelines on how to make the public announcements in the first half of this year. The guidelines would only serve as a recommendation, of course. Let's look to North Korea next. Pyongyang has destroyed symbols of unification from the eras of the previous two leaders and defined South Korea as its primary enemy recently. South Korea's unification minister Kim Yong-ho said such actions could stir confusion among the elites in the communist state. Can you share with us more of what he shed light on during an exclusive interview with KBS? So he appeared on a KBS news program on Sunday and the minister said Kim Jong-un's decision to depart from his father and grandfather's pursuit of inter-Korean unification could lead to ideological confusion internally. He warned that in order to ride out this period of confusion, the regime could resort to carrying out further military provocations. Here's an excerpt of his assessment. Erasing the achievements of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, who are the basis for hereditary power, dismantling the monument to the three charters for national reunification, calling it an eyesore, These moves are highly likely to create ideological confusion among North Korea's elite ranks. If internal conflict arises, the North is highly likely to engage in military provocations to ride out the crisis. The Seoul government takes the situation very seriously and has produced response measures such as military deterrence. So as you mentioned briefly earlier on, after framing the two Koreas as independent states at war late last year, last month Kim ordered the dismantlement of the monument to the three charters for national reunification, which honors unification efforts of late leader Kim Il-sung, and then demanded the cutoff of inter-Korean railway Gyeonggi line, a project from the Kim Jong-il era. Meanwhile, a British media outlet reported that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has a son who's older than his daughter, Jue, but has not been seen in public due to his outward appearance. Can you tell us more? So last Friday, the Daily Mail referenced a report by the Korea Times in which a retired NIS official, the top spy agency in Korea, Choi Soo-young, uh, who cited sources from the North, said the son's unappealing physical appearance seemed to have discouraged Kim from disclosing his son in public, adding that unlike Kim and his daughter, Choe, who is plumb and well-fed, his son is said to be pale and thin, Relatively, the Daily Mail pointed out why chubby physiques are preferred in North Korean society. Thin physiques may remind North Koreans of the Great Famine of the 1990s. The report also pointed out Kim may have two other illegitimate children. For now, their gender is unknown. In other news, the Trade, Industry and Energy Minister of South Korea, Andokun, has met with executives of the nation's top semiconductor companies to discuss responses to changes in the global chip market. 
That's right. On Monday, An met with officials from global chip producers Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix, as well as producers of materials, parts, and equipment for chip manufacturers. The government decided to set up a hotline between the minister and each of the company's CEOs. They also checked measures to follow up on the government plan to establish a semiconductor megacluster in southern Seoul by the year 2047. The ministry plans to spend 24 trillion won to foster talents in the sector of materials, parts, and equipment for chip manufacturing and pursue a testbed for their mass production. And finally, the Korea Workers' Compensation and Welfare Service announced on Monday that it granted diplomatic missions in the nation the right to file industrial accident injury claims in place of foreigners who work in South Korea. So can you tell us more? So previously, only the foreign workers' immediate family members, labor attorneys or lawyers could file such claims in place of the workers. With the diplomatic missions filing such claims free of charge, foreign workers are expected to face less inconvenience such as language barriers, while avoiding the risk of being exposed to illegal brokers and of being burdened by costs in selecting representation. With the surge in foreign workers in the nation, the number of industrial accident injury claims filed by such laborers grew nearly 26% from 2018 to stand at 9,543 last year. And that's our news briefing for today. Daniel, thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index slid 20.62 points or 0.77% on Monday to close at 2,647.08. The tech-heavy Kosdaq dipped 1.17 points or 0.13% to close at 867.40. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.11 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,331.11. You can check Korean stock and forks closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea and discuss headlines from around the world. And joining us for that in the studio, it is our KBS World Radio News Editor, Koo Hee Jin. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, Zhang. We first turn to Ukraine, where President Volodymyr Zelensky marks the second anniversary of the conflict with Russia this past weekend by revealing that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed so far. Hijin, can you tell us more about this tragic revelation? Well, according to BBC, CNN and Al Jazeera, the Ukrainian president's comments are the first time that Kyiv has confirmed the number of his losses since the Russian uh, president Vladimir Putin ordered his troops into Ukraine. Speaking at the Ukraine 2024 forum in Kyiv on Sunday, Zelensky said he would not give the number of wounded as that would help Russian military planning. Zelensky said he was providing an updated death toll in response to the inflated figures that Russia has quoted. He said, quote, 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died in this war, not 300,000 or 150,000 or whatever Putin and his lying circle are saying. But each of these losses are a great loss for us. Yes, it is rare for Ukraine, unprecedented, we should say, for Ukraine to provide a military death toll. Uh, There have been other estimates that suggest a much higher number. And sadly, casualties may rise this year, of course, after delays in Western aid for Ukraine as well. 
Indeed, U.S. officials in August put the number of Ukrainian soldiers killed at 70,000 and as many as 120,000 injured. In terms of Russian losses, Zelensky said 180,000 Russian soldiers have been killed and tens of thousands more injured. In February, the U.K. Defence Ministry estimated that 350,000 Russian troops have been killed or injured. Last week, Ukraine announced that it had withdrawn its troops uh, from the key eastern town of Avdika, uh, Moscow's biggest win in months. Zelensky blamed this, as well as other recent failed offensive, partly on faltering Western aid and weapons supplies. Meanwhile, we turn to yet another war, this time in the Middle East. Israel is mulling on the latest negotiations in Paris regarding a ceasefire deal in Gaza after reports of progress made in talks on Saturday. However, a final agreement seems far away as both Israel and Hamas express doubt over each other's commitment to the deal. So what's the latest? Well, according to the Associated Press, BBC and Al Jazeera, Israel's war cabinet was briefed on Saturday evening on talks over a ceasefire deal in Gaza uh, after progress made in Paris between Hamas officials and mediators from Egypt, Qatar and the US. The Paris talks are part of negotiations aimed at securing ceasefire and the return of hostages. On Sunday, White House National uh, Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said an understanding of the basic contours of a hostage deal and temporary ceasefire had been reached. However, both Israeli and Hamas officials have voiced dissatisfaction Uh, dissatisfaction over the deal. Still, an Israeli delegation is expected to arrive in Qatar soon to continue talks on securing a pause in the war that could see captives released. This comes as an airman from the US Air Force set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington on Sunday. And there have been signs of an anti-war sentiment within Israel as well, I understand. Indeed. Uh, CNN and BBC cited first responders in Washington who said officers from the U.S. Secret Service extinguished uh, the flames before the man was taken to hospital with uh, critical life-threatening injuries. The city's fire department uh, also gave a report. And an Air Force uh, spokesperson later told U.S. media that the man was an active-duty airman. A video has since emerged on social media purportedly showing the man shouting free Palestine as he burned. This comes as riot police broke up protests in Tel Aviv calling for uh, Prime Minister Benjamin uh, Netanyahu's resignation over the weekend. They voiced concern that their government is more interested in defeating Hamas than freeing hostages. And finally, we head to Mexico City, where they're facing a severe water crisis amid chaotic urban planning and poor infrastructure and exacerbated by climate change. What can you tell us? Well, according to AP and CNN, water shortage in Mexico City has become an all-out crisis in the sprawling metropolis of nearly 22 million people, one of the world's biggest cities. Years of abnormally low rainfall, longer dry periods and high temperatures have added stress to a water system already straining to cope with increased demand and authorities have been forced to introduce significant restrictions on the water pumped from reservoirs with people lining up for hours at uh, public water pumps. Politicians are downplaying any uh, sense of crisis but some experts say the situation has now reached such critical levels that Mexico City could be barreling towards day zero in a matter of months where uh, taps run 
dry for huge swaths of the city. Local media widely reported in early February that an official from a branch of Conagua, the country's National Water Commission, said that without significant rain, day zero could arrive as early as June 26th. We'll leave it there for our Global News Roundup. Thank you for bringing us those stories. Thank you. This is a story of a man named Chosu Lee. This case is not uncommon. It reflects on you and me. I am director Julie Ha. And I am director Eugene Yi of the film Free Chalsu Lee. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. month, it was reported that Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was seeking a summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in an effort to boost his flagging domestic popularity. Surprisingly, North Korea welcomed the suggestion, but with caveats. As revealed by the regime's state media, Kim Yo-jung, the powerful sister of Kim Jong-un, said that there is no reason for the two countries to remain distant as long as Japan does not create any stumbling blocks such as the already settled abduction issue. Tokyo has since taken a more cautious stance, saying that while Kim's assertion regarding the abductions was unacceptable, they are still paying attention to her remarks. To get some expert analysis on the prospects of relations between Pyongyang and Tokyo, we have two guests joining us on the line today. First, we have Professor Yi Jung, Associate Professor of International Studies at Gongju National University. Professor Im, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. And we also have Brad Glossman, the Deputy Director and Visiting Professor at the Centre for Rulemaking Strategies at Tama University in Japan. Professor Glossman, hello to you too. Hi, it's great to be back. So, Professor Im, can you briefly first tell us your first reaction to Kim Yo-jong's recent comments and this situation surrounding the possible summit? What do you make of it? Sure. Um, many, you know, the media um, reporters um, really um, highlighted um, the possible possibility, right? Possibility of Japanese prime ministers of possible visit to Pyongyang. Uh, but my um, immediate reaction to um, Kim Yo-jong's statement was. Again, the main highlighting point of her statement is, of course, of a doctee issue. Even though she said, like, as you just explained, you know, she said um, it's a, uh, already settled. Um, uh, however, uh, still, this is really a, a kind of really 
quick condition to resume the dialogue uh, between the Pyongyang and Tokyo, I think. So I felt like um, this is, again, uh, this abductee issue will be back on the table again. So that was my uh, more like a kind of initial um, immediate reaction to her death statement. And, um, of course, you know, abductee issue in Japan is politically very, very super important issue. And many um, those you know Japanese people have deep sympathy uh, with the uh, victim's family. Um, so this is a, uh, again for any Japanese politician uh, is a very crucial issue. So they cannot just skip the um, this um, this issue as just. Kim Yo-jung explained, of course, um, you know, Japanese government also, um, their reaction is pretty much clear uh, about that, too. So, um, uh, you know, uh, this um, this statement, I will say uh, it um, restarted, I will say, um, the domestic uh, kind of dialogue discussions on the uh, uh, tea issue. Professor Glossman, what did you make of it? Uh, Professor Him nailed it. Uh, it. It is absolutely essential for any Japanese politician with any credibility to insist upon continued conversation about the abductees that no one, and especially Prime Minister Kishida, given his both political foundation and his standing in the country right now, is in a position to put it aside. So while, of course, the Japanese would like to continue to have talks, the notion that this issue has been settled, it would not be raised or further discussed is, is, uh, is just a non-starter uh, as far as in any real sense. Right. So then, Professor Glossman, where has this conversation about a possible summit come from then? It initially came from a report that suggested that uh, Prime Minister Kishida was open to holding talks with Kim Jong-un. What would Japan want to get out of these this summit, this possible summit, and trying to bring closer ties with North Korea? Uh, well, there's, I mean, first of all, there are always all sorts of back-channel official and non-official conversations that are taking place between North Korea and every government in the region. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why they would like to both gauge opinion and try to uh, have some sort of meaningful conversation because there's just so many issues upon which North Korea is a player. As far as Prime Minister Kishida is concerned, of course, it has to. It would be a, a great boost to his popularity and to his, his standing if he were to be able to actually pull off a meeting with uh, the North Korean leader, with something almost none of his predecessors have been able to do for some time. Uh, and so, uh, clearly, the, the there's a, there's a drive to want to have these talks that makes great sense. Uh, and and obviously, what what you would look for, or what the Japanese would hope to get, is a sense or some a, a dialogue mechanism with Pyongyang that would allow Japan to air its concerns to hopefully begin to discuss key issues and, and find some sort of resolution and those key issues of course include the abductees but they also include things such as uh, uh, you know North Korea's uh, behavior in various facets whether it's counterfeiting of of um, of practically everything, of the smuggling of, of people, of, of drugs, of, of violation of United Nations uh, uh, um, resolutions to cyber uh, hacking and, and other you know, forms of, of essentially criminal behavior. There's all sorts of reasons that the Japanese, like the South Korean government, like the United States, even like China, quite frankly, would want to have talks with Pyongyang and try to find some common ground that would allow North Korea to be less of a disruptive force in regional and global politics. 
Professor Im, what about the other side? What would North Korea hope to gain from building closer ties with Japan? Uh, Japan, uh, Kim Yejong's response was, as I said at the beginning, uh, surprisingly uh, warm considering uh, all the rhetoric that's been uh, being thrown about uh, at the moment from North Korea when it comes to uh, South Korea and the US. Although, of course, as we said, there was that big uh, caveat, uh, that big Mm -hmm. stumbling block that remains. Sure. Um, you know, first of all, I think uh, we need to be a little uh, more careful with her that statement because she, she by herself, she also clarified that again. This is her own, just personal opinion. You know, that, that's not even like an official formal uh, position of the uh, whole um, North Korean regime. However, um, still, um, she was trying to again to resume the dialogue or controversies surrounding the uh, um, you know this um, Japan North Korea relations uh, constantly you know again to her that statement again to restarted all those kind of you know related discussions um, not only in Japan uh, here in South Korea or even in um, the United States too. So probably um, North Korea Pyongyang's um, intention is again since um, the last spring, uh, almost like a one year ago from now, again, the President Yoon, um, you know, restored the so-called shuttle diplomacy uh, between the uh, Seoul and Tokyo and Washington declaration in April and then trilateral summit um, at Camp David uh, in August. You know, a series of these kind of events um, ultimately strengthen um, the security cooperation uh, between Washington, Tokyo, and Seoul, again, the U.S., um, Japan, and Korea. Um, so from North Korea's point of view, of course, they want to shake or undermine uh, the effectiveness of the uh, trilateral cooperation. And from their point of view, they um, might have thought the tie uh, between the Seoul and Tokyo is relatively uh, weaker uh, than the other two ties, again, between Tokyo and Washington and between Seoul and Washington. So Japan's unique problem is, again, this abductee issue. So, um, you know, probably they uh, have thought they can um, test, um, you know, Japan's um, response to their their kind of, again, how would you say, initiative. Um, So um, probably, briefly speaking, in sum, I would say um, they are trying to, again, to shake uh, or even undermine uh, the uh, trilateral uh, cooperation framework uh, between the three um, countries. Can I, I add on to that? Because I think Professor Im's right. I, I, I put a little explanation point out. I would say that one of the things that Pyongyang wants to do is try to, you know, it has not been able to both have ties with Washington and with Seoul. And that means that if, if it's looking for an opportunity, then Tokyo is the only remaining access if you will, to the regional discussions that it's got, since it hasn't had that. It, and, and because the Japanese prime minister is weak through North Korean eyes, they would look at Tokyo as being perhaps more receptive to overtures that way. And perhaps this is their avenue. They could also then maybe use Seoul, I'm sorry, use Tokyo as a way to get the United States to engage. Look, Kim is not that unreasonable. Perhaps we should talk to him. It's a way, I think, if nothing else, of sidestepping and marginalizing Seoul, which is something that North Korea is always eager to do. And finally, I think uh, there's a real uh, key element, which is, is at the end of the day, what North Korea would be looking for is from a Japanese government that has, has historically been ready to pay for good relations.
And I think that that's what they're hoping that they would get. And, and, and again, a lot of this is defined by the utter lack of progress with Seoul and the sense that it's probably going to have to go around the UN government rather than go through it as it has with uh, its, his predecessor. Professor Im, can you give us a very brief uh, background on this issue and walk us through mm-hmm. where Pyongyang and Tokyo stand on the matter of the uh, Japanese civilians that were abducted in the 1970s and 80s? Can you tell us a bit more about it for our listeners? Sure. Um, there is a gap uh, between the Japan stance and the North Korea stance. Again, Japanese official um, you know, a position about this issue is they have 17 victims. However, on the other hand, North Korea um, kept claiming that you know, uh, there are 13, not 17. And the five of the 13 victims already returned when the um, former Prime Minister uh, Koizumi uh, visited Pyongyang in 2002. Um, and uh, the rest of the 13 victims, um, eight out of 13, already died. So that is why, that, that is the, the reason why um, Pyongyang kept arguing that this uh, issue is already settled, fully resolved. Um, however, in the 2014, um, again, the Pyongyang and Tokyo, they agreed in Stockholm um, about the uh, reinvestigation of the issue. But uh, very unfortunately, ever since then, um, there is no real um, outcomes or progress um, in the resolve of this issue. Right. So then in response to Kim Yajong's statement, Japan's chief cabinet secretary, Yoshimasa Hayashi, said Tokyo has been making continuous efforts through various channels to resolve pending issues with Pyongyang. But he made it clear that Japan will not accept the North's claim that the abductee issue has been resolved. So with that in mind, then, I guess the key question is, uh, how optimistic are you both about a possible summit between uh, Kim Jong-un and Fumio Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida. Let me start with you, Professor Lawson. I would, yeah, weirdly enough, I can see I can see a summit. I don't think it's very likely, but I don't think it's impossible either. The problem, but as to what it resolves, is of course another set of issues. And I think from the conversation that we've just had, and from Hayashi-san's uh, uh, statement, I see very little uh, suggestion that there's going to be a closing of the gaps that really define the relationship. But nevertheless, there's always an inclination, and the Japanese are far from happy or, uh, to talk. So um, at, at some point I can see, and I could, the question's going to be, really, what are the, the North Koreans going to demand for that meeting? Because we know that those are usually paid for in some way or form. And whether the Japanese think that it's actually going to be a worthwhile play for them to sort of try to burnish the prime minister's image with this kind of high-stakes diplomacy and whether or not the risks outplace the reward. I mean, the, the thing that's really important to recognize is, is that Kishida is a very weak prime minister domestically, and he's holding very much to the nationalists and the conservatives in the country, even if he himself is not. So since they are so suspicious of the North Koreans, it would be difficult to see him going too far out on a limb. But nevertheless, this is a moment in which both steps are required. Mm. Professor Im, what about you? How optimistic are you about a summit between the two? Oh, I agree with the uh, uh, Professor Grossman's observation. And you know, I'm, I'm very sceptical, too, because this is a logically as it's, I was just saying, yeah, it's a logical situation because from Japan's point of view, definitely they have to and they want to and they need to um, resume um, this issue again, the, the, the negotiations about the abductee. 
However, again, the Pyongyang's stance is very clear and stubborn too. You know, from their point of view, this is again reserved. And if you want to talk about this, I cannot. I cannot talk with you. So this is a totally kind of you know dilemma or like a stalemate situation. So you know, I, I don't think any uh, Japanese prime minister. Can resume um, dialogue or negotiations with the Pyongyang um, without talking about the Okdalki issue for for a while. So I, I don't, I can't be that much, you know, optimistic about the possibility. I think to, to follow up and just add one additional thought. I think what's really important, more so than anything else, is going to be coordination with Seoul. I mean, of course, Tokyo will talk to Washington about this, but there's mm-hmm. got to be a sense that both countries trust the other to engage North Korea in ways that don't compromise larger regional security or the other country's interests. So the, if nothing else, it actually it could prove to be a benefit if it spurs still greater cooperation between the two governments. Right. That is that was going to be my last question. What does this discussion uh, about a potential uh, summit mean for the situation on the peninsula more broadly? Uh, Professor Im, can you give your thoughts on this as well? I think the policy coordination uh, between the Seoul, Tokyo and Washington is very, uh, very important. And it will be uh, ultimately constructive to uh, the national interests of the three countries. Um, so, um, you know, because if you think about all this kind of geopolitical situation um, these days, again, Russia um, and Ukraine, they still have a war. And Middle East is very unstable. And then uh, here we do have a cross-strait issue or North Korea is like that. So having had all this kind of very um, strategically difficult situations, uh, I think a well-coordinated partnership uh, between the uh, trusted um, countries is, is, I think, is very crucial and is ultimately it will be um, constructive to the all um, three countries. Well, we'll see if this summit does indeed happen. In the meantime, we'll wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Professor Imin Jung from Gongju National University and Professor Brian Glossman from the Centre for Rural Making Strategies at Tama University. Thank you both for briefing us on this issue and sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Did you know that Korea 24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea 24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea 24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea 24, where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. On YouTube, we upload film versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Korea 24 experience by following us on social media.
We continue on now to our regular weekly update of some of the major sporting headlines and stories from Korea. It is our Monday Sports Roundup. And joining us now on the line for that, it is the great Yuji Ho, sports reporter for the Yanap News Agency. Jiu, hello. It's uh, great to have you with us again. Yeah, it's great to be here too. So the Korean monster is back. We are, of course, talking about the former baseball major league all-star Ryu Hanjin. He is back in the KBO after having signed a monster deal uh, with the Hanwha Eagles, the team that drafted him straight out of high school back in 2005. He is now the highest paid player in Korean league history. So, Jiu, he's back. Let's uh, first discuss the details of this uh, mega deal. Yeah, he's back indeed. Uh, Ryu Hyun-jin will be pitching in Korea for the first time since 2012. He signed an eight-year contract worth 17 billion won, just about 12.8 million dollars, depending on the currency uh, exchange rate. So it's going to take him to age 44 season, uh, biggest contract in KBO history by the total amount of the contract. He first pitched for the Eagles from 2006 to 2012. He was the league's most dominant pitcher pitcher right away. Uh, won the Rookie of the Year and the MVP award in the same season uh, after uh, grabbing the pitching triple crown as a league leader in wins, strikeouts, and, in, and ERA. And he was posted for MLB teams and signed with the LA Dodgers and then joined the Toronto Blue Jays in winter of 2019 to four more seasons in Canada and became a free agent after you know this past season. Expectations were that he would command some sort of a major league deal even at the advanced age of his at 36. He will be turning 37 next month. Uh, but apparently, he didn't find any, any offer to his liking. So he decided to come home, and the Eagles had kept the possibility open of signing Rio at some point this offseason, if not maybe next year. Uh, and they had engaged him in some positive dialogue going into, uh, I guess, there some earlier parts of this month. And then, uh, you know, things picked up really, really picked up pace early last week, and then they ended up signing him to a deal last week. So, Jiho, what's the consensus among baseball fans about his return? Yes, it'll be great to see. Uh, his talent back in Korea and raised the level of the KBO. But is there perhaps disappointment about how his time ended in the majors? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, obviously the Eagles team fans are pretty happy. Uh, I guess the fans of the nine other teams are not happy, right? Because they, <laughs> they wouldn't want their teams to be facing him so much. But uh, I, I don't get the sense of any disappointment at all about the way things ended. Uh, I think, uh, you know, people were pleasantly surprised the way he pitched after coming back from the elbow surgery last year. He came back uh, in August last year, pitched really well down the stretch for, for the Blue Jays, uh, kind of really helping them keep stay in the playoff race. Uh, he didn't end up pitching in the postseason, but you know he was one of the reasons why down the stretch that they were able to make it in the first place. Mm. So uh, you know you, we wouldn't say he went out on top necessarily, but uh, he came back after second elbow surgery and proved that he could pitch at a high level. And for him to coming home when he's still able to pitch effectively, I think that means a lot to the fan base in Korea. Rather than, you know, maybe he's, you know, towards the later in his career, maybe he's, maybe he's close up to 40 and he's, come home, he's coming home, maybe he won't be able to pitch as well as he would at this point in his career. So I think, you know, fans would appreciate that decision to come home uh, when he's, you know, not yet that old uh, mm. and he's still able to pitch at a pretty high level. Indeed. Well, Let's talk about what the Hanwha Eagles fans can expect and also the rest of the KBO as well. What does it mean for them? Yeah, so obviously he's a really quick shot in the arm for the Eagles, a team that had only made the postseason once since Rio left back in 2012. And they really have some good young talent. 
you know, they were still about to be years away from really contending because, you know, those young players are still growing. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, maybe he's the guy who would, you know, bring them all together. Uh, obviously, I don't think they're going to win a championship right away this year uh, just because they have Ryu. But uh, I, I think right now they're a playoff contending team at this point with him in the, with uh, Ryu in the rotation. Now, off the field, the Georgia Stales, the tickets, uh, I, I think they're going to go through the roof. Uh, you know, Ryu's iconic number 99 jersey for the Eagles. You know, it's going to be one of the t- hottest items in all of KBO. And he's going to be a huge attraction on the road whenever he goes, whenever he pitches away from Daejeon, the Eagles' home city. And he's going to really drive up the attendance across the league as well. And like I said earlier, other teams probably not happy to see him. You know, they don't, they wouldn't, they would rather not face him so much. But, uh, you know, they're not going to have to take the Hanwha Eagles pretty seriously this year. Yes, Hanwha have been the butt of jokes in Korean baseball for a few years mm-hmm. now, but uh, that looks all set to change. And also, quickly, what was the logic behind the decision to give him an eight-year deal as opposed to a four-year contract that was rumoured to be on the table? Yeah, so it was going to be, it was supposed to be, you know, 17 billion won over four years uh, rather than eight years. And uh, later on, the Eagles acknowledged that uh, they, had to, they had to take into account the salary cap issue, uh, which was first put in place in 2023. So for the next uh, three seasons, uh, the cap is set at about 11.4 billion won. And the Eagles had about 2.9 billion won in extra cap space. So if they had given Rio the same 17 billion won over four years, they would have exceeded the cap limit and would have had to pay additional tax for violating the cap line. So they cut down on the uh, average annual value of this uh, of, his, of his contract, but still give him the uh, the most amount of money in league history. So there was some you know bit of a negotiating between the two sides, but the Rio ended up, well, I should have said settling for that money, but uh, he ended up taking the same amount of money for over a longer period. Well, we welcome you back, and we look forward to seeing what he brings to the KBO this season, which is starting a little early this year on March 23rd. Uh, Korean baseball fans will be counting down the days, I'm sure. Uh, let's move on. It's been 10 days since Jurgen Klinsmann was fired as the head coach of the Korean men's national football team. And the search for his replacement continues this week. Jiho, how far has the Korea Football Association come along on this search? Yeah, so they're moving along. Uh, they they re- reorganized the national team's committee, which is in charge of appointing national team head coaches. And they, they brought in former coach Chung Hae-sung as the new leader of the committee. So Chung had his first meeting last Wednesday, another one on Saturday, trying to narrow down the candidates. Now, Korea will play World Cup qualifying matches against Thailand on March 21 and 26. And they, they, you know, they're faced with a little bit of a time crunch to name a new head coach. So there used to be some speculation that Korea would first name a temporary sort of a caretaker coach to handle the two March matches and then take his time before hiring a full-time coach. So Chung said it as much on Wednesday that uh, he and his new members of the committee, uh, they were leaning toward hiring a full-time, full-time boss because it would have been difficult to find anyone who would be willing to kind of coach the national team only for the two matches next month. But uh, apparently they had a bit of a change of mind after the second meeting on Saturday. Uh, you know, they're now looking for uh, apparently some sort of a temporary uh, coach would guide the team for the next two matches, and then they're going to take a little more time to find the full-time replacement Klinsman uh, later in later in the year. Okay, so a temporary coach for now, but perhaps a mm-hmm. permanent coach to be appointed nearer the summer then, which perhaps could mean more international candidates are available as well, I understand. In the meantime, who are some of the candidates at this point uh, that they are looking at? 
Yeah, so you mentioned international candidates uh, potentially being looked at. Uh, obviously, the committee, uh, you know, and Chung, the leader of the committee, are saying, I guess, all the right things. They're, they're leaving all the possibilities open, but uh, they're, admittedly, they're leaning toward hiring a Korean coach this time. So a couple of names that have been bandied about, Hong Myung-bo and Kim Gi-dong. Now, the one problem, uh, they're actually under contract with the K-League clubs. Uh, Hong, obviously, with the Wusan. Kim, after coaching Poang, he's about to, he's getting ready for his first season with FC Seoul, and their season starts on March 1st. So, you know, like, you know, Kim in particular, he hasn't even coached his first match for his team, and not in the league play anyway. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of backlash from those fan bases uh, against, K, against the KFA, mm. uh, which I think is the reason why they had a bit of a change of mind over the weekend not to go for a permanent Korean coach this time, so immediately, because there's a you know outcry among the K-League fan bases that uh, the KFA is not being respectful of the domestic league, trying to poach you know coaches that are already on the contract for the national team on a short notice. So, you know, I think that again they're gonna maybe keep the possibilities open for hiring another international figure. We'll see. But one name that is not under contract at this point, who has some coaching experience, uh, is Choi Hyung Soo, who has coached FC Seoul and Kangwon FC. Uh, in the K-League, but not in a national team. So there's a bit of a uh, interesting name out there. Um, and also, Park Hang-seo might be uh, a candidate for a temporary coach. I don't think he's interested in being a permanent coach for the national team, but I think he'll be willing to step up to coach the team for two matches next month. Yes, some fans of those K-League teams whose uh, prospective coaches have been linked have already started to uh, carry out protests as well. So yes, uh, mm-hmm. it is a very sensitive topic at the moment. Uh, fans uh, don't want to see their coaches leaving just before the K-League season starts. Speaking of which, the 2024 K-League season one, in fact, kicks off this Friday with the two-time defending champions Ulsan hosting ri- uh, regional rivals Pohang Steelers. So, Gio, let's preview the season ahead while uh, we still, I guess, know who all the her coaches are. Yeah, I guess so. For the time being, I guess Hong is still the coach for the Wusan uh, uh, Hyundai FC. They're trying to become just the third team in K-League history to pull off a three-peat, winning three straight titles. Uh, they would, in that case, they would they, they would join Cheongnam and Cheongbuk. You know, they lost a couple of national team caliber defenders in Kim Tae-won and Cheong Seung-yeon over the winter, but they also made some acquisitions and should once again contend for the title this year. Now, Chumbuk, they only finished fourth last season, their worst performance since 2008. And they're really busy this offseason, uh, going out there, signing players left and right, uh, bringing in guys like Kwon Chang-hoon, Lee Young-jae, and Kim Tae-hwan, all of them with the international experience, plus high-scoring forward, uh, Thiago Robo from Taejeon. So, you know, these two, I think, we should once again uh, do, uh, duke it out for the title. But in the meantime, I think the one team that will generate a ton of headlines will be FC Seoul because they signed former Manchester United midfielder Jesse Lingard earlier this month. Uh, he's by far the biggest international name to join a K-League team. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on this guy to live up to the hype and also push FC Seoul out of uh, some really mediocre play of the recent years. Yes, of course, he can't do that alone, but still, fans will be mm-hmm. hoping for some uh, magic from the former Ind- England international, some uh, stardust to uh, light up the league. Uh, we look forward to what he brings to the league as well. And finally, the World Team Table Tennis Championships came to a conclusion in the Korean city of Busan on Sunday. And the host country, Korea, won bronze medal in the men's competition. Jill, can you recap for us the first table tennis worlds that took place here in Korea? Yeah, so this is the fourth 
consecutive bronze medal for Korean men's team, but this felt a lot different than the previous three because Korea really pushed China hard in the semifinals on Saturday. Uh, they held a 2-1 lead before dropping the final two singles matches and ended up losing in 3-2. Uh, to two. Uh, It's a really intense, really uh, uh, exciting match for uh, close to 4,000 fans on hand uh, down in Busan. So Chang Woo-jin defeating world number two, Wang Chuchin, to begin the semifinals. And after Im Jong-un lost to world number one, Ban Zhang-dong, Yi Sang-joo defeated world number three, Ma Long, to give Korea a 2-1 lead. But Chang and Lin each lost their next two singles matches. Again, three and a half hours of really high-quality shot-making, really entertaining. A lot of Korean fans, obviously, but also pretty much even displayed with the Chinese fans as well on hand. So uh, it, I guess a bit of a heartbreaker for Korea not to you know, uh, knock off China in the semis, but uh, really well-earned bronze medal for the host country. But the women's team for Korea, they ran into China in, in the quarterfinals on Thursday, lost three or nothing. So they had a tough luck in the draw. But if they've been ranked, ranked top four, within the top four in the team world rankings, uh, rather than the fifth that they're right now, the odds of drawing China on the same side of the bracket would have been a lot lower. So, uh, you know, they're going to try to improve their position. But in the meantime, on a brighter note, both women's and men's teams have qualified for the Paris Olympics by reaching the quarterfinals at the World Championships. That's all for our Monday Sports Roundup. Jiho, thank you for those updates, and we'll talk to you again soon. OK, thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back with more news, reviews and reviews from Korea tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow when you're driving in snowy conditions. On days with heavy snowfall, take extra caution on sloping lanes as you could easily lose control of your vehicle. On icy roads, refrain from speeding as slippery road conditions make it harder to steer or stop the wheels. Ensure you keep a wider distance with the car ahead of you as it takes longer to slow down. Drivers are also advised to use chains and other equipment to keep their tyres from slipping. If you don't have the proper equipment, spray sand or soil on the tyres and start off in second gear. When travelling to areas with extreme snowfall, make sure you check the road and traffic conditions before setting off. When stranded in heavy snow, call 119 for assistance.